Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to turn in them to Psalm number 22. Psalm number 22. We'll be focusing our attention on the first half of this psalm, which, as we will see, is a psalm that further prophesies and speaks about what Jesus did and experienced for us on on Good Friday. So Psalm 22, we'll be reading together verses 1 through 21, or the first half of 21. So Psalm 22, verses 1 through 21a. Please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word to us this evening. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me. Like a ravening and roaring lion, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this evening. Well, life is filled with trials tribulations, afflictions, sufferings. These things are true for all of us, no matter who you are, 
and no matter where you live. This is a part of, of life in a fallen world. Now, oftentimes when these things enter our life, these, these troubles, these afflictions, these sufferings, we inevitably ask the why question. Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to my loved one, someone who I hold dearly? Now, all major religions, worldviews, philosophies seek to answer this why question, at least in part, and seek to help people through suffering. If you think of that ancient doctrine of, of karma, uh, which essentially says that if something bad has entered your life, it's probably because you have done something bad, and therefore, if you want to secure a good future for yourself uh, in this life and the life to come, you need to lead a decent and moral life. Or if you think of Buddhism, it essentially says that suffering comes from our cravings and our desires, and therefore if we want to conquer our sufferings, we need to quench those inward cravings. Or Islam, which says that suffering is just an inevitable part of this life, and we need to reconcile ourselves to the inscrutable will of Allah. Or if we think yet further about the mindset of those in the secular West, which essentially, uh, those who, who believe, this worldview essentially believe that there is no objective meaning or purpose in this world. There is no objective or, meaning per, or uh, uh, meaningful purpose behind the sufferings of our life. They're random. There really is no answer to that why question. And so we have to seek to create our own meaning and our own purpose out of the ashes. Well, Christianity also addresses suffering. From Genesis 3 onwards, the, uh, the, the whole rest of the Bible is, is addressing God's answer to the fallen human predicament. It's about God redeeming his people. It's about God bringing the new creation to this present evil age. Christianity gives us a very sound answer to that why question that we inevitably ask when suffering hits our life. And the answer that Christianity gives us is the best answer. It's really the only answer that gives us true and substantial comfort. Now you'll notice that this psalm, Psalm 22, is a psalm of David. Uh, we read that in, in the title. As we reflect upon Psalm 22 as a Psalm of David, we will see how David's experience here in Psalm 22 does in part mirror our experience as we travail this, this, this trouble-filled life. But we'll also see how David's experience here points forward to his greater son and what his greater son, our Lord Jesus Christ, experienced on Good Friday. The two things I'd like us to reflect upon this evening then are first, that we can lament both the presence and the effect of suffering in our life. We can lament both the presence and the effect of suffering in our life. And then second, we'll consider how Psalm 22 is God's answer to our suffering. Psalm 22 is God's answer to our suffering. Now, as, we, as you read the first half of Psalm 22, it's pretty obvious that David is suffering. David is going through severe afflictions. Now, 
Psalm 22 doesn't give us the specific historical context uh, behind, uh, behind David's words here. But David uses a number of metaphors to describe his sufferings, to describe his enemies. You'll notice that he describes both his sufferings and his enemies as bulls, the bulls of Bashan. In the ancient Near East, bulls from this region of Bashan were known uh, to be well-fed and thus strong bulls, and then as a consequence, dangerous bulls. You know, growing up on a farm, I remember hearing as a kid of a number of, of neighbors who died and were se- or severely injured because they got too close to an ornery bull. You don't mess with strong bulls. They're dangerous. And thus, David uses this metaphor to describe his present circumstances. He also uses the metaphor of a ravening and roaring lion, which, of course, is a very terrifying image uh, to think about. He uses the metaphor of wild oxen and disease-ridden dogs to describe his present circumstances. David here in this psalm is speaking about how he is mocked by his enemies, how he is physically afflicted, how his life is in grave danger. Now David doesn't merely speak about the presence of suffering in his life, but rather he spends most of his time talking about the effect that his suffering is having upon him, both spiritually and physically, both body and soul. If we're honest with ourselves, what makes suffering uh, uh, hard to deal with is not merely its presence, but the effect that it has upon us as body and soul creatures. And we see here that David is struggling spiritually and physically because of his present circumstances. And so first we see that David is struggling spiritually. This psalm begins in a very stark way. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This appeal that David uses where he calls God his God is a very personal appeal. David is essentially calling upon God as his father. And he's lamenting this, this, this fact that he feels as if God has forsaken or abandoned him. He feels as if his personal father has left his life. Now this word that, that David uses here for forsaken is used on a number of occasions elsewhere in the Old Testament. And it's used elsewhere to refer to a town being abandoned by her inhabitants or a wife being deserted by her husband. And so David here in verse 1 is basically saying that he feels like that deserted ghost town. He feels like that abandoned wife. And David goes on and and he speaks. um, He says, Why, why, O God, are you so far from saving me? He's continuing to explain what he means uh, when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says, "Why, Why are you so far from saving me? Why are you so far from the words of my groaning? To David, God feels distant and removed, an abstract deity. David feels as if his praying, his persistent praying, is, 
is, is merely a vain exercise. He says, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. Notice here that David isn't mere, merely praying, but he's crying and he's groaning. There's a pathos, an emotion behind David's petitions to his heavenly father. And yet, silence is what David seems to receive as an answer. And when David says here, I cry by night and I find no rest, this, this word for rest literally is silence. So David here, David here is praying, he's crying, he's groaning before God, and God seems to be silent. David wishes it was the reverse. David longs for God to silence him by answering his cries and his groaning. Now in the midst uh, of these emotions, David feels this inner conflict, this inner turmoil. A conflict and turmoil that's somewhat similar to the conflict and turmoil that we considered a number of weeks ago in Psalm 73. This, this conflict between our circumstances and God's promises. So you see here how, how David continues on in verse 3. He says, yet you are holy and enthroned on the praises of Israel. David knows who, who God is. David knows the character of God. This is Israel's king. David knows Genesis 1 and 2. David knows that this God is the creator and sustainer of the heavens and the earth. David knows the history and the story of the Exodus and that this God is redeemer God. He knows these things. But yet this knowledge almost makes things worse. Because David is thinking to himself, God, I know that you are sovereign. I know that you are all-powerful. I know that you are our redeemer and that you are good. So why? Why are you so far from saving me? Why are you so far from my groans and my cries? It doesn't seem to make sense. It doesn't compute in David's mind. And this inner, uh, David lets us in further on this inner conflict and turmoil that he's experiencing as he goes on in verses 3 and 4 to discuss and, and, and reflect upon God's past dealings with his fathers, previous generations of Israel. You'll notice that three times David references how his fathers trusted God. This is symmetrical, or this mirrors David's threefold appeal to God in verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, my God, which is David's confession of trust in his father. So David is telling us that he trusts God, and he's also telling us that previous generations, his fathers, trusted God. So when it comes to that, there's similarity, but but notice the contrast in the result of their trust. David says that his fathers trusted God and were delivered. And yet, David's struggling with this reality that he also is trusting God, but is languishing. He is trusting God, but yet he feels abandoned and forsaken. In verse 5, David says that his fathers trusted in God and God heard their cries and answered them and yet he cries out and God gives him no rest. 
So David is, is struggling with his inner conflict and toil, not only as he thinks about God's character, but also as he thinks about God's past dealings with the people of Israel. It doesn't compute in his mind. He's struggling spiritually. But we also see that these circumstances that, that David is being called to walk through is also having a physical effect upon him. So if you look with me in verses 14 and 15, David says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. As one commentator has said, it's almost as if David is experiencing shock or trauma here. It's not just... Uh, his circumstances have not only had, had uh, taken a, a spiritual toll upon him, but a physical toll. He feels like a like a a worn, uh, worn out, uh, a wore out piece of clay or, or pottery that that an archaeologist finds in a, in a in a dig. He feels as if he can't even speak. His tongue is is stuck to his jaws. He. He's struggling, not just spiritually, but physically. Now, for honest, I think we can relate to David's experience. How oftentimes the things that we are called to walk through in this life have ramifications, not just on us spiritually, but physically as well. We, we too can, are tempted to interpret our circumstances as evidence that God must have forsaken us, that he must have abandoned us. We are, we are tempted to interpret our unanswered prayers as God removing himself from our life. We struggle with God's silence when we have real needs and concerns. We struggle with God's silence when we know that he is sovereign, all-powerful, and good. Sometimes we struggle to be encouraged when people tell us to remember God's past faithfulness when he seems so presently aloof in our lives. We struggle. We struggle in many of the same ways that David is struggling here in this psalm, and yet these struggles can also have a physical impact upon us as well. We may not be able to sleep. We may be anxious and agitated. Our head might throb and our stomach might ache. This is the effect of the sufferings of this present age upon us, both bodily and in terms of our soul. And so we come back to that original question that pops up into our mind every time uh, these sufferings enter. Why? Why am I called to walk this path? Now Psalm 22 also is given to us as God's answer to this why question, as God's answer to our suffering. Now when you read the first half of Psalm 22, even just on first reading, it's pretty clear and seems to be pretty obvious that some of the things that David speaks about transcends David's experience, transcends even our experience. And so in this way, David really was speaking prophetically about what his greater son would one day experience, which then is the reason why we hear and learn in Matthew 22, Jesus himself quoting 
Psalm 22, verse 1, as he hangs on that cross on Good Friday. So listen to what we hear in Matthew 22, verse 36. In about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemme sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus quotes this verse uh, in, in Aramaic, which is why it's, it's, it's rendered there in Matthew's gospel. But he quotes Psalm 22, verse 1, and Jesus teaches us that this psalm is ultimately Jesus' psalm. It's his psalm. And Sunday, we'll learn about how the second half of this psalm is really all about Easter morning. Jesus' resurrection, exaltation, and glorification. But what was Jesus experiencing? What, what did he suffer on Good Friday? What, what are we commemorating, remembering this day? Well, we know that Jesus was scorned and derided by men. We, we see this in Psalm 22, verses 6 through 8. We know that Jesus was physically spent, and one could even say traumatized, as David speaks about in verses 14 through 15. We know that Jesus' hands and feet were pierced as he was crucified, which David alludes to in verse 16. We know that his possessions were gambled away, which is found in verse 18. We know that Jesus himself was, was experiencing such great turmoil and such severe threats that he could say that he was surrounded by the bulls of Bashan, by furious lions, by disease-ridden dogs, and by wild oxen. However, when Jesus cries out, when he explicitly quotes verse 1 of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What, was Je- what did Jesus mean when he quoted this verse? Well, Jesus, when he quoted this verse, was not only saying that he felt as if God abandoned him, he was saying that God really was forsaking him. Now think about David when he originally penned these words. He was, he was putting to paper what he was feeling, what he was experiencing. He felt as if God had forsaken him. He felt as if God had abandoned him. But we know that David wasn't speaking to objective reality. God didn't objectively abandon or forsake David. God didn't pour out his wrath upon David. David is merely telling us how he was feeling spiritually at a particular moment of his life. Well, when Jesus quotes this verse, Jesus isn't merely giving us a window into his inner psyche. Jesus is telling us objectively what happened when he was hanging on that cross, regardless of what he was was personally feeling. He was forsaken by God. He was abandoned by his father as his father poured out his wrath upon his son. This is what the cross itself symbolizes. The cross for both Romans and Jews was a symbol of curse, which is why the Apostle Paul can say that Christ became a curse for us on Good Friday. 
So the good news, the good news of Good Friday is that when we feel as David felt, when we feel forsaken and abandoned by God, when we feel as if God is so far from our groaning, so far from saving us, we can know that those are merely feelings. They do not accord with objective reality. Why? Because Jesus was forsaken for us so that we may never be. Jesus experienced his prayers echoing through a desolate expanse as his father's ears were plugged with the sins of his bride so that we might have the privilege of knowing that our prayers are always heard. This is the good news. The good news that we can celebrate and should celebrate on this day, on Good Friday. Now when Jesus quotes verse 1, when he says on that cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus there is asking that why question. That question that pops up into our minds every time uh, suffering breaks in. Now Jesus knew the, the, the answer to his own why question. The very purpose for him coming, to this, uh, coming into this world was to be forsaken by his Father. He knew that the cross was, uh, was a part of his mission and plan. In fact, we know that before the foundation of the world, God the Father and God the Son, before, before even the universe existed or we were on this planet, God the Father and God the Son entered into this pact or agreement or covenant together whereby the Son agreed to come to this world, take on human flesh, and fulfill Psalm 22. So Jesus knew. He knew why he was hanging on that cross. He knew why he was being forsaken. But that doesn't mean that he still didn't struggle with the cross. This shows us the real humanity of our Lord. Just the night before, Jesus was was sweating blood as he anticipated this moment of being abandoned by his Father. Uh, This was not easy for Jesus according to his humanity. Again, we have to remember that Jesus was like us in every way, sin accepted. But yet he persevered for the sake of winning a people for himself. And so, God's answer to our suffering is not for us to delve into his secret will, but rather it's for us to content ourselves with the good news of Good Friday. And what, again, is that good news? Was that Jesus was abandoned and forsaken for us so that we might be delivered and rescued from that most severe judgment of God and that we might be given a hope A hope of a new creation, a new creation that's so glorious that the Apostle Paul can say, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Let us pray.
Our Lord Jesus